Welcome to the 284th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Ruth Carletz for a discussion of COVID in authoritarian regimes. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 27, 2021, there are 3,498,892 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, 591,953 people have died from COVID-19. Brazil is reporting 454,429 deaths from COVID-19. Tanzania reports 21 deaths from COVID-19. North Korea has not reported, or it's unknown, the number of deaths in North Korea from COVID-19. Belarus reports 2,801 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Bangladeshi journalist arrested for COVID reporting granted bail. This appeared 23rd of May 2021 in Al Jazeera. A leading female Bangladesh, Bangladeshi journalist who reported on official corruption during the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been granted conditional bail after her detention sparked days of nationwide protests and drew international condemnation. Rosina Islam, 42, an investigative reporter for the country's largest Bengali daily, Prothom Alo, was arrested by police on Monday under the Official Secrets Act, which carries a possible death sentence. He was later charged with stealing health ministry documents. Islam was granted bail on Sunday after being ordered to surrender her passport and pay a bail bond of 5,000 taka, about $60, by the chief metropolitan magistrate of the capital, Dhaka, her lawyer told reporters. Prosecution lawyer Abdullah Abu did not object to the bail request, and both sides told reporters that Magistrate Baki Bila mentioned in his order that the media plays a supporting role in democracy. He did not oppose her ad interim bail, provided she submits her passport, Dhaka's chief prosecutor Abdullah Abu told AFP. Passport submission was to prevent her from leaving the country, he said, adding that Islam was expected to be released from detention later on Sunday. Journalist unions and advocacy groups said Islam was detained for her stories, which included allegations that urgently needed medical equipment was left at Dhaka Airport for months and that bribes had been offered to recruit doctors. Islam was arrested 
after she allegedly used her mobile phone without permission to photograph documents related to government negotiations to buy coronavirus vaccines while she waited in the room of an official involved in the process, according to case documents seen by the Associated Press. Several of Islam's hard-hitting reports on corruption involving the Ministry of Health and others have drawn attention to the millions of dollars spent on procuring health equipment to deal with the pandemic. Her detention triggered nationwide protests by thousands of journalists as well as political and civil rights activists. Rights groups say a crackdown on the media has grown during the coronavirus crisis. Bangladesh has reported nearly 800,000 coronavirus infections and more than 12,300 deaths so far, but experts say the actual numbers are likely to be much higher. Islam's detention triggered nationwide protest. According to the AFP, the General Secretary of Bangladesh's National Press Club welcomed the court's bail decision but called for the case against her to be dropped entirely. She's been asked to submit her passport, which is a curb on her freedom of movement, Elias Khan told AFP. We've demanded that all the cases against her are withdrawn immediately. Bangladesh journalists still operate in a climate of fear, he said. Bangladesh Foreign Minister A.K. Abdul Momen on Thursday regretted the arrest and said Islam would receive justice. Her family said Islam was held for more than five hours on Monday in the room of a personal assistant of the Ministry of Health Secretary. Her sister said Islam was physically and mentally harassed before she was handed over to police. Instead of locking up critics, encouraging a free press should be central to the government's strategy to strengthen health services in combating the pandemic, Brad Adams. Asia Director of Human Rights Watch said. The New York-based watchdog said at least 247 journalists had reportedly been subjected to attacks, harassment, and intimidation by state officials and others affiliated with the government in 2020. More than 900 cases were filed under the Digital Security Act, with nearly 1,000 people charged and 353 of them detained, many of them journalists, it said. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Ruth Carlitz. Ruth is an assistant professor of political science at Tulane University, where she teaches courses on international development and African politics. Her research focuses primarily on the politics of public goods provision in low-income countries from the perspectives of both governments and citizens. Her work has been published in World Development, Perspectives on Politics, Public Administration, and Other Outlets. In addition to her academic research, she has worked on evaluations commissioned by USAID, the International Budget Partnership, BFID, and the World Bank. Ruth Carlitz, thank you so much for making time to join me today on COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me. So let me start the way I usually do, which is to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Sure. So I am on Tulane University's campus in New Orleans, Louisiana, and things are looking pretty good here in terms of case numbers and vaccinations. Tulane was actually able to hold scaled down in-person graduation ceremonies last week. And yesterday, the mayor of New Orleans lifted a number of remaining restrictions, including the ban on parades and second lines. And so I've only lived here a bit under two years, but uh, lifting the parade ban is is a big deal for things kind of getting back to normal. And as far as campus life goes, what are they predicting at this point? 
they are promising a full return to in-person instruction and everything normal in the fall. I am somewhat conveniently on research leave in the fall, so I will hear how it goes rather than experience it firsthand. Well, I've, we've got a lot to talk about today in terms of your work. So I want to just, first of all, you have a recent piece out um, with co-author Rachel McClellan in Perspectives on Politics, uh, and congratulations on that. And the title is Open Data from Authoritarian Regimes, New Opportunities, New Challenges. So let's, let's start with that. What's this work about? Sure. So Rachel and I have both done extensive field work in Tanzania, and this is a country that has some trappings of democracy. They allow multi-party elections, but the same party, the ruling party, has been in power since independence in 1961. So it's sort of a de facto one-party state at the national level. And this is in part due to genuine popularity, um, or for some people, you know, better to, to vote for the devil you know. Um, but the country has taken an increasingly authoritarian turn, especially since 2015, which is when John uh, Pombe Magafuli was elected as president. And so during Magafuli's time in office, which actually ended abruptly when he died in March of this year, um, there have been some serious restrictions on the free flow of information, particularly in newspapers and through social media. And at the same time, Tanzania has been at the forefront of a global trend of releasing official data through online portals. And so this is something that is promoted in part by reporting statistics to the UN and the World Bank to track progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals. So a country like Tanzania that relies considerably on foreign aid is motivated to report a range of statistics. But the motivation to report is not the same as the motivation to report accurately. And so Rachel and I were concerned that scholars who don't know Tanzania or don't know other authoritarian regimes with similar incentives might use the data they release without really questioning it. In our study, we try to sort of use Tanzania as a cautionary tale, and we focus on data with uh, of local tax receipts, which is something that doesn't necessarily seem like it would be politicized, but we're able to show that the official tax takings do appear to show higher um, tax revenues in ruling party strongholds. And this can lead to sort of a range of flawed inferences. And so we're, we're not trying to tell people not to use this data that's kind of increasingly available from a range of contexts, but to urge caution and reflection and really think about the politics of data production and dissemination, and then take some additional steps when you're using the kind of data that is being generated through these open data portals to convince readers of the reliability of it. So basic question to start, that number I quoted at the top of the program, 21 deaths in Tanzania from COVID-19. What's your confidence level in that number? So that number, if I'm not mistaken, is from May 8th, 2020. So the country completely stopped reporting. That's that's. I think that's the number of cumulative deaths. Um, the country just completely stopped reporting um, in May of last year. And uh, certainly, you know, I haven't been able to go to Tanzania in this time. And but you know, working with co-authors there and other friends, were you know there have been rumors of burials taking place in the dead of night or people dying after breathing complications. So I I fear that is 
quite an underestimate. You have friends and colleagues there, I'm sure. Have you been able to stay connected throughout the pandemic? We have. I think the 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 one um, it was it was especially challenging uh, to get information out. So there was um, Tanzania held elections toward the end of 2020, and Magafuli was up for a second term, and he he won in a landslide victory. Although on election day, things like WhatsApp and and other uh, services were cut off, so I couldn't you know kind of get through to anybody. I was seeing things on Twitter mm. from folks who were using VPN, um, but then Magafuli died just a few months after taking office from what was officially reported as as heart complications, and he has had a heart condition since his. Mm. 20s but um you know the it's certainly a condition that could be exacerbated by covid and yeah. he was um you know from from sort of the very early stages really downplaying the seriousness of of the pandemic if you wouldn't mind maybe just helping me understand some sort of baseline concepts that you work in in, in this kind of work i mean are you focusing um much of your work right now in tanzania but um, what are some of the measures that when we talk about authoritarianism um, and, and I've had a few COVID calls um, with experts in this area thinking about the United States or Europe, but you're the first person I've spoken with who's been doing this kind of research focused on Africa. So w when you say authoritarianism and you talked a little bit about kind of single party rule, but what are some of the things that you would use to describe that term in more detail? Um, there's a democracy index, for example, that's out there that people can find that helpfully ranks probably, um, maybe it's not so helpful or not so accurate, but it ranks countries like from top to bottom. And you can go and see where your country fits in terms of um, these measures, um, which a number of different data points are pulled together there. I think the U.S. ranks number 25 um, out of that. Scandinavian countries are at the top. North Korea is at the bottom. I saw Tanzania at number 93, I think, in that list. How good is that index or other types of indices that you might rely upon to call a country authoritarian? So, yeah, I, I, I think that I think these classifications are, are certainly helpful maybe for identifying countries that have similar systems of government, similar constraints, especially on um free flow of information also the processes through which governments are selected the degree to which the popular will actually translates into who's selected and um i think i find the you know scientific measurement and and ranking of democracy sometimes a bit troubling. And, and I think it can be very ahistoric. Um, the economist Morton Jervin has done some really kind of great critical work in this regard, um, not necessarily dinging particular indexes, but, but kind of responding to, you know, lines of, of scholarship and, and then in the popular discourse around, you know, these are these are the characteristics of, you know, countries that have strong democracies and good institutions with the implication that if a country like Tanzania or another lower on the ranking just changed a few things, they could, they could go up in the rankings. And I think 
there's there's a bit of of as I mentioned, these can be a bit ahistoric, you know, and and mm. so ignoring things like the legacies of colonialism, especially in sure. in the part of the world that that I have focused on, and so I think I think I'm I'm sort of more comfortable with. Uh, systems of, of classification that maybe say, you know, these are these are features of a system of governance that we associate with democracy and, and we can get strong agreement on. But when you're having like, you know, a, a 97 versus a 96, like what is that, what does that really mean? I think once once we put numbers on things, we sort of take them as objective. But behind these numbers are a lot of assumptions and a lot of these rankings are based on the subjective opinions of experts and then who gets to be an expert. And, you know, I think there are, there are a lot of kind of boxes that don't get opened or cans of worms that don't get opened once something has a number on it. And then it's sort of cold, mm -hmm. hard, objective fact. And uh, so, so yeah, but I, but I do use these, these rankings in my, in my work. So I'm, I'm being, I'm being a little hypocritical, but uh, I think they, they do sometimes make me a little uncomfortable. No, thank you for that discussion. But, and of course that's the bind we're all in. I mean, that, that we are, I catch myself doing this all the time. I'm sort of simultaneously critiquing the numbers related to COVID, but then I rely upon them incessantly. And so I'm always caught in this space where I'm like, okay, remember, to try to take apart the number, remember to try to take apart the number, but it is a baseline that we rely on. And just to follow up on that, you know, to what extent are health reported, are reported health statistics part of those kind of calculations, either democracy index or others that you might prefer in terms of understanding how thriving a democracy might be in a given country? I think they're hugely important. So uh, this is this has now been been oft quoted, um, Amartya Sen and, and some of his his writings, you know, has said that you know a there's never been a famine in a in a democracy, and and maybe we'll we'll update that for for thinking about COVID, or maybe not actually. And so, you know, I do think that population health and well being is a really important indicator of you know how well that society is doing and there are potentially different paths for getting there but i think when you have serious inequities in health outcomes that points often to governance issues and even in the us you know we have very different mortality rates not only from covid but for giving birth among people of different races, people who live in different parts of the country. And some of that, you know, if we think about the inequities in maternal mortality, some of that is definitely governance driven, you know, decisions about what sort of prenatal care is, is uh, going to be made available to people or going to be publicly funded whose influence is then coming into play and in restricting access to certain types of care. So I think looking at health outcomes overall, but in particular looking at inequities in health outcomes is, is really important. So just to follow up a little bit more on some of the research you've been doing in the context of Tanzania, you have another paper which is titled Coping with Denialism, How Street-Level Bureaucrats Adapted and Responded to COVID-19 in Tanzania. And I want to hear 
about this. And I just, you know, at the outset, want to point out you're one of the scholars who's continued to do work somehow um, in the midst of this pandemic, which is based somewhere else. And I, as you said, you haven't really been able to travel there. So I'd like to hear also how you've been able to conduct this research in the sort of context of the of the pandemic. But let's tell us a little bit about this work, about the street level bureaucrats in Tanzania and COVID-19. Sure. And I think I can answer answer both of those questions in one, because this paper, which is I think an unproofread version of it is going to be up on the website of the Journal of Health Politics, Policy and Law later this week or next. But this is a paper that I co-authored with um, two public health experts, one of whom, Nina Yamanis, is based at American University and the other, Henry Malal, is based at Mzumbe University in Tanzania. And Dr. Malal is someone that I've had the good fortune of a long working relationship with. And so we were able to connect um, first to actually write a chapter for this book I've strategically placed behind me on coronavirus politics. And then that developed into an article. So I think having a co-author in Tanzania for this paper was vital. Um, And so what this paper does is jumping off point is that As I mentioned, Tanzania completely stopped reporting on COVID cases and deaths in May of last year. And this was around the same time that President Magafuli declared the country COVID-free. Magafuli's main actions on the pandemic were to encourage people to attend national prayer services and live their lives without fear. Uh, That said, his Ministry of Health did issue some guidelines at the beginning of the outbreak reflecting international best practices, things like social distancing, hand washing, and use of PPE. And so I'd been talking with um, my co-author, Nina Yamanis, about, you know, who's a public health expert, thinking about, okay, there are these international best practices, but they're developed for, you know, social distancing looks one way in a European Western European country? How does social distancing work in a society that's much more communal or sort of densely populated um, informal living arrangements? And so that was sort of our point of departure. And then things were really unfolding in terms of the high level denials when we sort of got our study into the field and um, reached out to Dr. Malel to, to join us. And thanks to his great efforts, we were able to get interviews on the ground going in July um, with 40 local health officials. So this ranges from people at the regional level, which is sort of maybe, it's even above like a state. It's the sort of the highest uh, administrative unit. Tanzania has about 20 regions on the mainland. And then regions are divided into districts and districts are divided into wards and wards are divided into um, subwards and villages um, or urban neighborhoods. And so we interviewed officials at different levels of government, um, hospital administrators, district health officers, village health officers, things like this. And the sort of what was really striking, I'd say our two key takeaways first was that, you know, this is in July. So two months after um, the president has declared victory over coronavirus and, and is saying everybody go back to living as normal. And we're finding a whole lot of work by these tireless local officials to get people to wash their hands, get people to social distance, get people to wear masks, you know, public education campaigns to sort of 
tell people how to, um, you know, report if they have a suspected case, how to quarantine, um, all these kinds of things. So it was it was clear that there was, you know, if you were just reading the headlines and seeing, oh, this is a country that is completely denying the pandemic, that wasn't really the case when you got to what was happening on the ground. That being said, we didn't hear a lot of, you know, pushback to the national level messaging, but rather we heard, um, you know, our respondents overwhelmingly praised the president and said that the limited national response was helpful for reducing fear and stigma. And it allowed them to treat, one of our interviewees uh, said, you know, this allowed us to treat COVID like a normal disease. And this is a context where these local officials have a lot of experience working with other communicable diseases, um, some of which are much more deadly, like Ebola um, and HIV AIDS, and obviously different sort of disease profiles. But some of the measures, there are parallels, you know, safe burials, things like this. And so I think for, for some of our interviewees, you know, having, having someone say, you know, COVID is nothing so special, sort of let them go on with with their with their lives and and adapt their their best practices from dealing with these other diseases. Um, that being said, you know we we are aware of a potential you know what we call social desirability bias. You know interviewees or survey respondents saying something that that they think you want to hear or maybe that they think their higher ups want to hear. So this wasn't necessarily, we weren't going in and expecting people to tell us their, you know, deepest, darkest hopes and fears. But but we heard enough sort of criticism along with the praise that that we thought a lot of it was pretty genuine, you know? So I think it was it was this disconnect between what someone sitting far away and only reading the headlines in the BBC or the Guardian or the New York Times would think was going on in Tanzania and then actually getting pretty different perspective from these local officials. There's a lot to follow up on here. And so let's go into some of the details. I mean, just at, at one level, you're describing a situation where they've got you right. There's two discourses. Well, there's probably multiple discourses, but two for our purposes for the moment. One is sort of national level one coming from the president, which um, doesn't sound that different from what we've heard from Jair Bolsonaro or from uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. For that matter, and many other heads of states around the Boris Johnson and others, um, nothing to see here. Go back to normal life. This will pass over, or as Trump said, this will all. You know, I think he said forty, fifty times, this will go away. It'll just fade away. That sort of thing. But then the reality at the local level of health officials who are doing their work and doing their job. And so, have I got that right? I mean, they just mm-hmm. they sort of mm-hmm. seem to coexist. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, just to follow up on that part, then, is it dangerous for local officials in authoritarian regimes to do their job in that context? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's you know, this is something that we kind of speculate in the paper because it's not a comparative study. You know, it's looking at Tanzania at one point in time, but then we try to make some uh, claims or, or hypotheses, you know, things that we could we or others could look into in future research about, you know, is this is this sort of a a positive loophole of weak state capacity? So Tanzania is a big country with, you know, huge range of 
different environments and and um, different ethnic groups and different social institutions. And so it's hard for a government that's, you know, pretty under-resourced compared to other countries of that size to actually keep tabs on what everybody's doing. So that's, you know, maybe there's a benefit of that. And, and so it's interesting in this literature, you know, we use this phrase street level bureaucrats, which is something that you see in the literature on public administration. And a lot of this literature talks about the discretion that street level bureaucrats have. You know, they are state employees, but on a day-to-day -day basis, they're often guided by their own judgment and prejudices. And often in the literature, this is presented as a bad thing. You know, they're not going to implement the policy because they're using their discretion. But our, our study suggests that actually, you know, maybe a lack of oversight resulting from weak state capacity gives them more room. Um, that being said, I think that space to maneuver is really constrained. And that is something that other scholars in Tanzania have documented. You know, they talk about decision space or policy space. And when Magafuli came to office in late 2015, he sort of came in on this, he'd campaigned on this slogan, uh, Hapa Kazi Tu, which in Swahili means, um, you know, now time for work. And he was really kind of this anti-corruption, um, you know, no more being lazy, let's, let's sort of take things seriously and clean up government. And um, so it was, it was, it was very, it was a reform rhetoric, but it was very heavy handed. And so in his first few months in office, he fired a whole bunch of officials at, you know, including like the director of the national hospital in Dar es Salaam, but also down to the district level. And in, you know, this was framed as cleaning up and getting rid of waste, fraud and abuse. But in many cases, the people he fired were replaced with party cadres or, um, you know, people seen as kind of more sympathetic to his, to his way of ruling. And so, I know that um, just in, in traveling to Tanzania since he was elected, um, it, it was it was hard to kind of do much at, you know, I, I visited some district government offices. And even though I had official research approval, like people were kind of paralyzed before having the relevant letters confirming that research approval from their direct supervisors, lest they do something that could be seen as deviating from government policy and therefore be grounds to be fired. And so uh, I think there's there's some room to maneuver and and that can be used in in our study, I think, you know, to for good public health outcomes potentially, but but there's definitely a lot of fear, which really, constrains, you know, not just if effective uh, doing of your job, but just creativity in, in general. This is something that um, I've seen other scholars document um, in, in thinking about why policies to provide clean water break down. Um, these things where people are just you know, not given the space to sort of react in the way that they think or know is right, but waiting for the directive from above and, and fearing deviating from it. You mentioned HIV AIDS pandemic as maybe a lens through which to look at this. Will we see a similar sort of issue if we looked at Tanzania mm -hmm. in this regard, where there's a sort of a national level discourse 
um, maybe even a denialism uh, going on where if we went out to local hospitals, we'd see something different going on? So I think there, the bigger disconnect in discourses is actually what's happening among international development, you know, donors and um, what's happening in countries that are, um, you know, sites of intervention to control the spread of HIV and AIDS. And I'm going to drop a link in the chat here to a book by my UCLA fellow alumna, uh, Kim Dion, and she really documents this disconnect between how donors have been thinking about HIV AIDS and the solutions they've been proposing and, and what actually people in countries that have been hit heavily by the AIDS pandemic have um, have sort of thought are their priorities. And I remember seeing this, you know, I first started working in Tanzania in 2000. Six, and this was at the height of um, the U.S. under George W. Bush had put a lot of money into HIV and AIDS through PEPFAR, and um, I was I was working with a local NGO in the education sector, but most of my expat friends were in public health. Um, it actually includes my my co-author on this paper. That's how we first met. But you know, they they were noticing like some of them were working in reproductive health. And so they would see things like, you know, a shiny new clinic for HIV and AIDS testing or distribution of, of antiretrovirals um, next to a kind of falling down general health clinic. And, you know, Tanzania, I'm sure a number of other countries that get a lot of foreign aid for this, Tanzania has a whole ministry devoted to HIV and AIDS. It is not the leading cause of death in the country. You know, I think diseases like malaria that are are somehow not as sexy have have not gotten the same attention. So I think that's really where that's the disconnect I'm aware of. I would expect there are, um, you know, to be honest, I haven't kind of followed the politics of HIV within Tanzania beyond sort of seeing that disconnect between kind of what the international community is focused on and then how that filters down into priorities and budgeting in these countries that get a lot of foreign aid. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking today about COVID-19 in authoritarian regimes, and we're talking specifically about Tanzania right now with Ruth Carlitz. And I want to come to an issue that um, maybe was signaled in the news article I read at the top from Al Jazeera about the Bangladesh uh, situation and the journalist there who was arrested for basically exposing um mistruths or underreported statistics and from the health ministry there. And she was locked up for that. And then it took a sort of national uprising to get her out of jail, but she's still facing um, charges. So bring that, that story into the context of Tanzania f- for us. What's the situation of journalism there? 
maybe health journalism more specifically. I mean, it's for all of us, we, no matter in the United States or in Europe or in East Asia, wherever we are, um, I think we, we sort of take um, transparency and news as a given when we shouldn't. And then we realize, particularly in the middle of a disaster, um, the incredible stresses that these journalists are operating under. I wonder what that looks like in Tanzania. So this isn't something I've been tracking extensively in the context of COVID, but certainly since Magafuli took office, there's been a huge crackdown on press freedom and and also on, on social media. And this has been, there've also been some pretty draconian laws passed um, that, you know, criminalize using even government statistics in a way that is seen as as not benefiting the regime. And it's it's also made it really hard to gather data. And so um, whether it comes to to doing surveys or or gathering information that is beyond the remit of of official government statistics. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of self-censorship. Um, but there are some you know, pretty outspoken politicians, and, and some of them have have faced arrest for, you know, posts on on social media. A few years into into Magafuli's first term, um, the opposition politician Zito Kabwe posted something online, and this was basically he was calling into question GDP statistics that the bank of Tanzania had released. And basically he was, he was only using official data, but he was triangulating a few different official data sources and saying, you know, based on what you told us in one report about revenues or or something, you know, that really doesn't add up if you're telling us GDP grew by this much. And so he wasn't, you know, asking for any additional information or coming up with his own. He was only sort of doing the math on officially released statistics, and that was enough to get him arrested and detained for a while. So I think that's so visible. That really leads to a lot of um, a lot of fear and, and self-censorship uh, when it comes to kind of going against the party line. But there has been some, I mean, this is less journalism, but sort of uh, there was an interesting, I think it was a commentary in, the Lancet or sort of an associated Lancet publication by a group of Tanzanian scientists. And they were they were also sort of pushing back against this international narrative that Tanzania is not taking things seriously. And they were saying, you know, actually there's been, Tanzania has, has been really encouraging the use of traditional remedies. And, and these are things that are, have a long history and have been kind of sidelined by Western medicine, but maybe it's time to think about these and, and take them seriously. I can See if I can find a link to that. So in this in this context, um, you know, and we've been talking about the different scales here and the problem of reporting and finding the truth in an authoritarian regime. Um, but is the is the UN? You talked about the power of the World Development Goals, um, maybe as a motivator for some transparency at the national level. The WHO. Um, various organizations, international um, nonprofits that focus on health provision or press freedom. I mean, how powerful are those as instruments to try to uh, enable 
truth-telling in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, I I think it's it's hard when there are sort of so many fires to put out. And so mm. maybe in in you know, I think something that's that's striking about the pandemic as compared to other health or governance crises in a country like Tanzania is that it's also happening in the rich countries. And so this can have a leveling effect. I mean, this can maybe mean, you know, I think there there's some potential to disrupt hierarchies of knowledge um, and expertise. And, you know, when it's clear that, you know, some of the richest and most powerful countries in the world really don't know what they're doing either. Uh, you know, maybe maybe that sort of opens the door for more, you know, listening to the experiences and judgments of countries, you know, like many countries in Africa that actually have deep reserves of, of experience in dealing with communicable diseases and things like, you know, contact tracing and these sort of things that rely on, on communities sharing information. This is something that, you know, there's many countries have kind of deep experience with community health workers. And so these are people who are, you know, sometimes will receive a stipend from the government, but are based in their communities and do things like follow up and make sure kids are getting vaccinated or distribute um, uh, antiretrovirals, these sorts of things. And, and so have are deeply embedded in their communities. And I think, you know, can potentially and, and have been, you know, leveraged for contact tracing, which is, you know, was really a challenge in, in, in societies that are much more atomized and people are much less uh, connected with their neighbors and their communities and more wary of like somebody coming to the door and asking them for information. So let's broaden the view a little bit. I know you've also done some some work sort of considering the role of lockdown policies, for example, in other um, African countries. Can you give them continental? So you, you've focused in certain areas. Tell us a little bit about um, the work you've done beyond Tanzania's borders. Sure. So I sort of started off my study of different countries' responses to the pandemic by working with both my collaborators in Tanzania, but also with a scholar based at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. And so it kind of gave me a sense of, of two really different approaches to dealing with COVID, it, both on the African continent. So South Africa taking a much, you know, one of the most stringent lockdowns in the world and um, taking things very, very seriously and, and, you know, in sort of night and day compared with Tanzania. And, and in my study with Maraka Makora from the University of Pretoria, we really reflect on, you know, the degree to which different segments of society in South Africa were able to comply with lockdown and then maybe the sort of implications for inequality as a result. And so studying these two really different countries made me Think it would be interesting to do something kind of, you know, take a, a view from above of the continent and, and compare across countries. And so um, I have a paper under review that tries to look at sort of trade-offs associated with lockdown writ large. And so, you know, the first thing that I think is important to note is that if we look back to March and April of last year, 
the majority of countries on the continent had, at least on paper, policies in place that looked like other high-income regions, higher-income regions. So by the end of April, 48 out of 50 African countries with comparable data had closed some or all schools. 39 had required closing workplaces or mandated people work from home. 38 had placed restrictions on public gatherings and 41 had banned incoming travel or closed their borders completely. So pretty pretty serious measures. Um, but the extent to which such measures were prolonged varied considerably. Um, so I, I yet again put on my amateur epidemiologist hat, which is uh, <laughs> not sure, not sure about that. But, um, you know, we really kind of compare the stringency of lockdowns to case reproduction. And I saw some evidence to suggest that these lockdowns were, you know, having the desired effect to an extent, when stringent, you know, looking on a daily basis of the stringency of these measures, and the rates of case reproduction, a couple of weeks later, you know, there there did to be seem to be some some movement in the in the right direction, um, but it also made me wonder about trade offs. Um, so the majority of countries on the continent experienced economic contraction, and a number saw considerable disruptions to routine health services as well as some pretty serious human rights violations. But what I found that was this the severity of these costs really didn't map onto the stringency of lockdowns. And so it sort of suggests that some governments have engaged in what other scholars have termed opportunistic repression. Um, I'm going to share a link to that um, as well. And, you know, sort of using, using the pandemic as cover to maybe further authoritarian tendencies or, or cut off access to information. And, it was striking. I was I was in a an online conference at the African Studies Association toward the end of of last year, and in a panel talking about COVID in Africa, and one of the panelists was doing work where she was interviewing people who had been really active in the anti-apartheid struggle and had faced a lot of you know confrontation, uh, repression by state authorities at that time. And she was kind of curious to see if they were seeing echoes of that in lockdown associated repression. And she found that that, you know, people people shared having some of the same experiences or encounters, you know, really strict curfews, all these sorts of things. But they were by and large OK with it. You know, they sort of saw, well, mm. it's good that the government is taking this so seriously. And so I think, you know, there is a risk that that the pandemic gives Governments, you know, a lot of governments have declared states of emergency, which have then allowed them to do all sorts of extra legal things that would otherwise require legislative approval. And this can be a way to act nimbly, but it it certainly can can open the door to abuse. There's so much in that. I mean, it's such a and as I think about the how we even make sense of that, you know, comparing it to the United States, which had such a angry continues to have such an angry politics around following um, public health you know directives to wear a mask or to lock down or to close businesses um, but you know what you're talking about is a situation where a person if i'm understanding it correctly they would simultaneously be worried that the government might misuse these powers of lockdown to suppress movement for political aims but at the same time they want to 
stay home or close those schools because it's not safe. So what is, you know, I mean, down to the level of individuals, I wonder how they, how they cope with that kind of, of uncertainty in these, in these kind of situations, because you're, you know, if, if that's your concern, um, you have to then weigh on one side, like, well, am I sacrificing my health for some kind of, for democracy? Or am I sacrificing my health um, to sort of stand up or to signal some kind of refusal to a regime? I don't know how you navigate in a situation like that. I mean, I don't even think I fully understand how you navigate in the United States under a situation like that, not to mention other countries. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's there's just a lot of cynicism on the part of, of politicians to take advantage of those fears. And, you know, in, in political science, we're kind of taught in this rational choice framework, and we're taught to assume that politicians are venal and rent seeking, and all they care about is reelection. And I, when I started grad school, I really found that so disheartening and pushed back on it. And I feel like there's increasing evidence that 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 in many cases that's uh that's true but yeah I, I don't know i'm really struck by the phrase um angry politics that you that you used and i think something that was striking in our study of south africa where we had some subnational data on population mobility relying on cell phones and so you know this is this is uh, data that a number of scholars have used to kind of get at the extent to which people are actually complying with lockdown orders or in places maybe where there isn't as strict a lockdown, like in Sweden, um, are people still staying home? And, um, you know, these these measures work best in places where a lot of people use smartphones. So South Africa is a better place to use it than, than some other parts of Africa. Um, but our subnational analysis of this mobility data showed that the people who were complying less were in parts of the country where their livelihoods were more subsistence based, where it was much harder to work from home and these sorts of things. And so that was kind of the, the drivers of variation in compliance or in population mobility. And that really contrasts with um, some studies from the US. There's a recent paper in PNAS by Guy Grossman and some others um, just dropped a link to it. And it shows using similar mobile phone data that there's really a partisan divide in, in who complies. And so, you know, directives in um, counties with a majority of Republicans were complying a lot less, were staying home a lot less. And, and so I think this sort of partisan dimension of it, I have a lot of very fortunate to have a lot of collaborators around the world. And I think a lot of them find it just, you know, bizarre what a stark partisan issue that has become in the U.S. Just to follow up a little bit on the South Africa case. So you did find that there was um, compliance, or at least the cell phone data seemed to indicate there was pretty broad compliance. So you have a sort of national directive, but it's maybe hard to find out actually what's going on. And so you can use this cell phone data and it indicated people were staying home. But did the, did the national government then provide, for example, economic stimulus supplements? You know, I mean, this is part of, part of the strategy in the U.S. at least. 
it didn't go nearly far enough. Um, but to try to have some um, moment of realism in which you say, if we're asking people to stay home and not work, we're asking them to starve, basically, if they're, um, you know, it, in working class folks. So we have to do something about that. Similar kind of national level policy or South Africa or other places in Africa you've looked at? So South Africa actually has provided a considerable amount of relief. I think, you know, I haven't been sort of following this up very closely. So this is more kind of looking at the numbers, but, uh, and I'm sure people would say it's it's not enough or maybe not going far enough for the most vulnerable, but things like um, there was uh, assistance through an unemployment insurance fund, um, unemployment benefits extended, additional funds um, for workers below a certain income threshold, receiving tax subsidies, the most vulnerable families receiving temporarily higher social grant amounts, and then a new temporary COVID grant to pub to cover unemployed workers who didn't receive grants or unemployment insurance fund benefits. This was extended through April of this year. Um, and so just to was, was kind of looking at this in comparison, and so to put this in, in perspective, the IMF has been tracking fiscal measures in response to the pandemic. And as of January of this year, South Africa had devoted 5.5% of GDP in additional spending or foregone revenues to, um, to target kind of pandemic relief. And this is a greater proportion as a percentage of GDP than a number of advanced economies, including the Netherlands, Iceland, and Spain. So, you know, I think this is a country where they were aware of, of what an ask this was. Um, another example where there's been kind of like really reflection about what the costs of lockdown can entail for a lot of people who, who rely on subsistence work. In Malawi, there was a national lockdown that then there was a lot of pushback against and it ended up being kind of scaled back and then accompanied by um, social grant scheme of, of some kind that was, you know, reflecting that, uh, you know, you can't just ask people to stay home if they're not going to be able to, you know, support their families. Let me just follow up on one um, aspect of, of this, kind of going back to a little bit what we were talking about earlier. Um, one of the ideas that I think undergirds a lot of emergency management in the United States and in Europe is that there may be a sort of fog of disaster that happens. You might want to call it improvisation, although I think a lot of people in the middle of a disaster don't experience it um, in quite such a positive way. <laughs> so we don't exactly always know what's going on. Accounting can't always be done in the moment. But there's this sort of general feeling that when the disaster ends, we're going to get an accounting of what happened, that we will be able to go in various auditing procedures that are required by for-profit, not-for-profit, and you know legal requirements, that there'll be a number of different sort of ways in which we get a clearer picture of exactly what happened. Now, not everybody agrees that that's exactly how it works, but let's leave that there for a second. Bring us back to Tanzania. When, when the pandemic is declared over, what confidence do you have that we will begin to get a clearer picture you know, the government stopped reporting statistics last year. Will we then fill in that gap somehow when the disaster is over? Or is that just imposing an American mindset 
where it just doesn't make sense? Will we just really never know exactly what the COVID statistics were in this regime? I think I think that is unlikely, although I would think it's maybe unlikely anywhere to sort of have that have that accounting. I think especially in something that has generated just so much fatigue. I mean, I think even like if I personally try to account for myself in the last year, I'm sort of amazed that I've gotten a decent amount of work done, <laughs> but it's like, how did I do that? You know, this, this sort of fog. And so I think I, I yeah, but, you know, I think Tanzania is a, a very interesting place to be watching right now because so President Magafuli, who really took the country in a more authoritarian direction, as I mentioned, he died a few months into his second term, um, suspected by some of COVID potentially. Um, and he was succeeded by his vice president, Semia Suluhu Hassan. And she's, you know, same, same party, um, not necessarily seen as some reformer who's going to do a total 180, but she is taking a very different tack with respect to COVID. She's been seen in public wearing a mask. Um, she's convened a committee to develop recommendations for managing the pandemic. And they just released a, a press release last Monday. And it it's really night and day, you know, it's sort of doing a commitment to uh, access to information and reporting and surveillance, and then also joining the, the Global Vaccine Alliance to get Tanzania access to vaccine through through COVAX or other initiatives. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty invested at this point as are, as are my co-authors. And so we're actually, um, we've been meeting this last week to design a follow-up study to see you know, maybe this actually doesn't matter so much for for the kinds of local officials that we were interviewing. You know, there or maybe it gives them less space to maneuver if now there's sort of an official party line on this. Um, but we're really just curious to see how how things are going to unfold. But I uh, I don't imagine a lot of that is going to be backward looking. I think this is still you know a a, a society, a system of governance that doesn't feel very comfortable often, you know, publicly questioning authority. And so, and even doing that retrospectively. So I think my sense is there is a feeling of relief in, in many quarters, but you're not seeing like, you know, oh, you know, this president is, you know, down with Magafuli. Like, I think it's, it's sort of, I think she, she's operating very, nimbly and 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 I imagine diplomatically and I'll be you know I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that this will maybe improve health outcomes for people in Tanzania in in aggregate but I think it will be really interesting to to keep an eye on I'm glad you mentioned the vaccination uh you know aspect of this because there you have a case where um, maybe local officials and local hospitals can pursue their own sort of public health um, directives outside of not are not as closely watched. But you can't; they're not; they don't can't start a pharmaceutical company in the back of a hospital. I mean, to a certain extent, when it comes to vaccination, that has to flow through um, you know federal channels, national 
channels. And so Tanzania is not denied in the sense that they want to vaccinate. You can't deny COVID's reality in that regard. So are they embracing, um, strongly embracing the sort of national demand, international demand for vaccine and vaccination? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, in a in a nimble and and diplomatic way and mm. so and and in a way that is trying to be tailored and targeted to that that country's specific needs so i think i think there's a real hesitation to say we're we're falling into line with the world health organization but rather we want to see what the needs of our community is and with respect to this disease and then what resources can be mobilized to help them. Um, so that's, that's the kind of rhetoric that, that I'm, I'm seeing at least. Well, just to remind everybody, you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Ruth Carlitz today with one more topic I wanted to get to Ruth. And actually it's a good segue since you mentioned the new president of Tanzania, Samia Saluhu Hassan, um, and so now the country is under the leadership of a woman. And we we'll go back to um, some reporting that was done. The New York Times actually had a story early in the pandemic under the headline. Um, well, I was asking the, the, I don't have the headline here, but they're asking the question, um, why nations led by women were doing better with COVID? And at that point, they pointed to New Zealand. This has held up. New Zealand's president, Jack and the, Ardern, as well as Finland under Sana Marin. And then they were talking about Germany at that time. I'm not sure if the case of Germany has borne out so much optimism, but they were putting that question on the table back, you know, in the darkest days of the pandemic to look at national leadership styles when you compare, um, you know, the gender of the leader. So I wonder what you think about even just that framing of that question or where that, that might where that might lead us, that sort of line of discussion might take us. Sure, thank you. So I I'm pretty wary of essentializing gender. And I think I think we'll have true equality when women leaders can be just as corrupt and incompetent as men. Um, so I think it's more likely that there's something about the overall systems of yeah. governance in countries that elect women to the highest offices. Um, so it's sort of epiphenomenal rather than some causal effect of female leadership. If you, you know, flip a coin and then have a woman president, everything is great. Um, that said, I think given how women are socialized in many countries and, you know, sort of the norms that surround women's roles in society or even in the household, there's reason to believe they may be more responsive on certain public health concerns or adopt approaches that can can have beneficial effects. Um, and so, you know, I have I have done some work looking into that. And 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 I think it's 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 really more to do with, you know, thinking about the the different experiences, the different lived realities of women versus men in many countries. And then what are the implications when women are in positions of power. And so it can be, you know, it gets back to this question of discretion. And so, you know, even if someone isn't elected on a, on a platform of pro-women's issues, there may just be 
things that, you know, men in their same positions wouldn't be thinking about and, and wouldn't be aware of. And um, so I think that can have a number of kind of uh, consequences down the line. Just a quote from uh, an essay or an article, and you'll have to tell me if this has already been published or it's a work in progress, but um, you shared with me, and I was really struck by this, you write, building on the literatures on substantive representation and political incorporation, we expect that when more women are represented in cabinets and legislatures, countries will be more likely to enact policies that directly speak to women's pandemic-related concerns. So this is what you were saying just a moment ago. It's not so much that we um, just say, well, if you have a woman head of state, then, you know, all is well and, and we'll have a stronger somehow, you know, as you say, essentializing a feminized leadership will somehow means that you're more attentive to a pandemic and you're giving a much more fine grained read on this, which would have much more to do with um, concerns around governance that legislatures should be taking on board. And then that is the way that we that's the scale at which we should be should be considering it. Yeah, so this is this paper is is very much uh, in the early stages, and um, I'm working on it with Valeria Machkova at the University of Gothenburg, and we are looking into data from the UNDP and UN Women has this COVID global gender response tracker, and it monitors whether countries have adopted policies to tackle women's economic and social situations, unpaid household work and violence against women, things that are kind of, you know, more pressing given the pandemic. And then how are they responding on these issues? And so we've just begun looking at statistical correlations between women's representation in these different um, branches of government and the enactment of these measures. And so far, we're seeing that the gender of the head of state or the minister of health doesn't have much bearing on the nature of policy responses, but there is some relationship between female representation in the legislature and having more gender sensitive policies in place. But we're, you know, we're still working on, on the quantitative analysis, but this is going to be a study that really is going to go into a few qualitative case studies to actually map out, you know, who's proposing these policies, who is lobbying for them, who is lobbying against them, and what is the role of both women and men in, in leadership positions, in positions of power to get these these policies on the book. And, and you know, and maybe we'll also see again sort of a role of of the international development community, um, you know, these these pressures that are are not just about, you know, the needs of of people in that in that society, but it's it's kind of building on some some work that Valeria and I have done, looking at female representation in African parliaments and finding that that does is uh, you know associated with lower infant mortality if we look in countries over time in Africa and and also with greater spending on health and so you know it does sort of lend some credence to the idea that you know women in countries where gender roles are pretty defined and where women have a lot more responsibility for childcare and, you know, therefore keeping babies and kids healthy are going to be maybe thinking more about that, prioritizing that more when it comes to making policy decisions. 
I think that that work. Thank you for explaining it at that level, and I think it's going to be just super relevant everywhere. I mean, I'm thinking back you now to the early days of the pandemic in the United States, in which um, a lot of labor, which is usually invisible labor, but the labor of care, um, which has still not been adequately documented in in the United States case, and it's not ac- adequately documented as a structural feature. You now there's certain things that women do, like I said, household work, taking care of children. Now all of a sudden everybody's at home and men are saying, Oh, wait a minute. I, you know, the thinking of the home as a workplace suddenly became this framing in the United States. And it was a moment I think for many people to realize, Oh, we haven't really been accounting for care. We haven't been accounting for all of these things that go into, and you can call them labor. You can call them healthcare. You can frame it however you want. It's a rethink uh, about what has gone unaccounted for and whether or not that aggregates up into the level of politics and sort of demanding that legislatures intervene um, with policies like family uh, paid leave, maternity leave, paternity leave, various kinds of things, which would be specific policy answers to that need, I think is still an open question. Certainly, the Biden administration has been more active on that than than the Trump administration, maybe that you would expect that. But I will be reading that work that you're talking about, not just thinking about Africa, but also the implications for the United States. Great. Yeah, no, and and that study is actually looking globally. So um, we're we're really interested to see how that how that plays out. And and what you just said, I mean, I think, I think crises can be opportunities, because they are they are situations in which the status quo is disrupted, and that can lead to a reevaluation of some of these assumptions that then inform, you know, social norms. And so, I think I think there is there is potential for that, you know, restructuring of gendered divisions of labor in the household, and seeing how that filters up into national politics. You know, I don't I don't think we want to get you know, too pie in the sky, but but I I, th- I think this is you know a critical juncture in so many ways and um, something to keep an eye on. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at five thirty p.m. Eastern time. Please join me back on Monday at five thirty p.m. Eastern time for our next COVID calls discussion. And I want to thank my guest today, Ruth Carlitz, for a really wide ranging discussion. I always learn from from guests. Um, And I really learned a lot from our discussion today. So thanks for sharing this work you're doing, so many different dimensions of it. And good luck um, as you're going going forward with it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you today. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 